Today on the Winnipeg Foundation's Because Radio Recap, we'll look back at the opening of the St. Boniface Belvedere, the announcement of new Indigenous artworks at Nijo Seabean at the Forks, and Senator Murray Sinclair's keynote at the Winnipeg Foundation's Vital Conversation, Lighting the Way Forward. All this and much, much more as we look back at 2019 on the Winnipeg Foundation's Because Radio Recap. Hello and welcome to the Winnipeg Foundation's Because Radio. Today's episode is episode number 36, but it is our part one of our Because Radio recap, looking back at 2019. My name is Robert Zirk. My co-host, Sonny Primolo, is away today for the holidays. We hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. We have lots of stories to get to, so to start things off, we'll look back at the opening of the St. Boniface Belvedere in June of 2019 and how it's creating an enjoyable experience while connecting communities. Welcome back to Because Radio. Robert Zirk here with you today. The Winnipeg Foundation hosted a grand opening for the St. Boniface Belvedere. If you haven't seen the Belvedere yet, it's a remarkable space. The Belvedere juts out over the riverbank to provide a very scenic view of downtown Winnipeg, and it also features a new art installation called Far West by local artist Marcel Gosselin. Rick Frost, CEO of the Winnipeg Foundation, explains some of the historical significance for the Belvedere. The Cour de Bois and the very first settlers to our city landed their canoes right on the river at this point. And right near this spot, Bishop Provencher also welcomed the first four Grey Nuns here in 1844, 26 years before Manitoba even became a province. And just last week, the Grey Nuns celebrated 175 years of service to our province. Carol Phillips, the executive director of the Winnipeg Arts Council, spoke to the vision of artist Marcel Gosselin for his new public artwork that's on the Belvedere. The light within Marcel Gosselin's sculpture recalls how, coming upon the St. Boniface area at 1 a.m., the nuns were guided to the shore of the Red River by the bishop and his lantern. The floating plates that you see on the top of the sculpture represent the eight hands of these nuns coming together and being instrumental in founding, preserving, and protecting the foundational institutions of St. Boniface. The institutions are represented by the triangular windowed obelisk, which rises upward and tapers from the base to a vanishing point in the sky. The title, Fa West, has been translated by the artist as Far West, but he notes that this play on words will also read as Lighthouse West to the French speakers among us. I spoke with Norm Gousseau. He's the CEO of Entreprise Riel, an economic development and destination marketing agency in St. Boniface, St. Norbert, and St. Vital, to get a little bit of background on what drove this project. The Promenade Tachy, which was, I guess the ribbon was cut on it in 1984, was starting to look a little worn. And uh, sidewalks weren't wide enough. A lot of people were trying to get through here, but yet it was, you know, it was just not conducive for pedestrian traffic and cyclists and that sort of thing. So we started talking about that, and of course the Winnipeg 
Prospect Foundation is at the table right away on these things, it seems. Somehow they hear about it and they're there. Rick Frost was at the table and he said, you know, how about if I spend a little bit of money, help you guys get it to uh, conceptual design uh, level? So we did that with uh, with a couple of architects at Sengaburi and Gary Hilderman. And uh, it allowed us to dream. And then once that dream got going, then we're just like, that's it. We're going to deliver this thing. So as, as a community, as all the stakeholders, including the foundation and the forks, uh, we got together and kept putting the pressure on to make it happen. And, and here we are today, cutting the ribbon on something that's going to be a, leg, that's a legacy for the city of Winnipeg, I think, and, and, and tourists who, uh, who would come and have a look at our, at our wonderful city. Norm also spoke to how the Belvedere and the renewal of the Taché Promenade helps to build greater connections between St. Boniface, the Forks, and Upper Fort Gary. It's a wonderful community that's rooted in, in history that should be celebrated and it should be part of the greater of greater Winnipeg. And, and these connections by creating these trails, you know, physical connections with the rest of the community is very important. And people discover, uh, you know, be it discovering St. Boniface or discovering the Forks or different areas like that. These types of, this type of in- infrastructure encourages people to get out of their cars and walk or cycle and, and, uh, and get around the community. And you discover a heck of a lot more of your community with those types of uh, modes of transportation as opposed to a vehicle. Mayor Brian Bowman was also at the grand opening for the St. Boniface Belvedere and emphasized that the project wouldn't have been possible without the collaboration of governments, organizations, and the community. The stars had to align, and they did on this project at the right time with the right people and resources that were available. And so, uh, you know, it started with a, a, a city councillor who is passionate about the community that he represents and strongly advocating and building the collaboratively the support on council to to support this project not an easy feat with the dollars involved um, it uh, you know obviously involved the collaboration from uh, the federal government and of course the support of the Winnipeg Arts Council and of course uh, last but not least the, the Winnipeg Foundation a million dollars for a project like this is a significant investment for all those that support the Winnipeg Foundation that need a reminder on what the benefits are of supporting the Winnipeg Foundation you just simply need to come for a walk on this and and see it firsthand. Mayor Bowman also noted the variety of roles that the Belvedere will play in enhancing and connecting communities. This is more than just, uh, you know, just a walkway. I mean, this is river stabilization, riverbank stabilization. It's eight active transportation connectivity to our city and to the Forks. It's, It's celebrating our history. It's better connecting a lot of people and places in our city, and and it's doing it with a a heavy dose of public art to uh, remind uh, Canadians of the rich history that's here in St. Boniface in the city of Winnipeg. St. Boniface Councillor Matt Allard was a major advocate for the Belvedere and the Taché renewal and noted how the support from his constituents was a driving factor for the project's realization. It was like St. Boniface came out unanimously supporting this project come out and build this project that's required. We all want it. When we talk about public works projects of this scale, it's rare to get that level of uh, almost unanimous support for something. There are so many people who came to say, yes, this is the right direction, and it's it's great to see it uh, yeah, finally all complete. And Councillor Allard has a message for all Winnipeggers. Come visit, come walk, bike, or even uh, or even come and park somewhere and have a walk around. Uh, you know, there's beautiful facilities at the Forks, there's beautiful facilities at St. Boniface, and you can easily have a beautiful afternoon if you want to come check it out. If I can maybe quote, uh, I think this came from Rick Frost, you know, this is like Winnipeg's living room. And so come, come over, kick your feet up, have a coffee, maybe have a drink. 
whatever you're looking for. Just come, come with your family, relax, and enjoy the experience. You can learn more about the opening of the St. Boniface Belvedere by visiting the Winnipeg Foundation website at wpgfdn.org. For Because Radio, I'm Robert Zirk. Up next on Because Radio, the designs of three new art installations by Indigenous artists at The Forks were unveiled in May, highlighting the integral role of truth and reconciliation in our journey forward while paying homage to Manitoba's past. Created by artists Casey Adams, Jamie Isaac, and Val Vint, and curated by Dr. Julie Nagam, who is the chair of the History of Indigenous Arts of North America at the University of Winnipeg, the installations are set to be complete in 2020 and 2021, supported by the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with The Forks. I attended an announcement at the Forks for three brand new Indigenous-themed public art pieces. The scale of the pieces will be huge, and they'll surely change the visual dynamic of the Forks for the better. I spoke with the three Indigenous artists about their newly announced projects. First up, I spoke with Casey Adams about her art piece she's calling Friendship. I'm going to be creating a piece, right now it's called Friendship, but we're going to see as it goes along but it's basically uh, talks about the relationship between settler and indigenous people when they first came together and uh, there's a wolf that's being represented by the settler community and um, a human form that is uh, representing the indigenous community and it's the moment where they come together and so you don't know if it's if the wolf is going to attack or if they're going to uh, be amicable. So it's, um, it's really talking about the pasts and there were good moments and there were definitely bad moments, um, but it, it really gets people thinking about the, that dialogue and, the, and that relationship and how do we move forward the art will be on the on the land of the forks and can you tell me a little bit about why being at the forks is is so valuable and important to the piece well we were just talking about how i'm really happy where my piece is going to be going it's going to be really next to the canadian museum for human rights so i'm really excited that it's right there it talks about relationships and dialogue about those relationships and it's also a nice little area where you can sit and look at the piece as well. That's what I was thinking. It was like how important those connections are. Next, I talked to Val Vint about her piece, Education is the New Buffalo. My piece is a bison. It's misnamed. The bison have been misnamed and misidentified as a buffalo, but buffalo are actually from a different continent. But it comes from elders talking about education as our new buffalo or bison because at one time that was the animal that provided everything, food, shelter, tools, everything. And now education is what does that. So the the bison will be constructed out of not literal books, but books and and videos that are done predominantly by uh, Aboriginal authors and artists. There will also be some pieces of allies in there as well. So it's like pulling us together in a good way. How do you think public art contributes to the healing and contributes to the truth and reconciliation that we're all striving for? Well, I think and unless you unless you understand what happened, unless you understand history, it's difficult to 
understand what is going on right now. So the changes, like when we're talking about murdered and missing women and, and talking about, you know, a large number of Indigenous people living in poverty, can't get education, can't get jobs. Well, there's a history and a reason for that. So we all need to work together to make a change for, for all of us, not just Indigenous people, but for all of us, because we need to, we need to be concerned about our relatives. And we are all related. And from Indigenous perspective, we are all related, period. Lastly, I spoke with Jamie Isaac about her piece, The Eighth and Final Fire. So I'm really excited about this work. Um, it, uh, I'm still thinking through the materials that I'm going to be using. And I think there'll be a series of experimentations and just process to see what works best for that space. But it's going to tell the Anishinaabe prophecy of the eighth and final fire. And so that really tells and talks about relationships of all nations on Turtle Island. And the eighth and final fire is lit by the seventh fire based on the relationships and the choice that people have to make together. And that's um, based on a foundation of understanding and empathy. And it's, it will be lit or it won't be lit based on people's decisions to move forward in the future together. What does the success of this look like for you? What do you hope comes out of this when people see it? Well, I think that public art is really important um, in so many different ways. Um, and I think what I hope happens with this work is that people will learn about that prophecy and will learn a little bit about our history and um, think about their own responsibility and their own stake in, in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Miigwech. All of those exciting new public art projects should be ready and installed at the Forks in 2020 and 2021. For Because Radio, I'm Jeremy Morantz. Up next is our Winnipeg Impact Maker story on Yoko Chapman, the principal and creative director of Aoko Design, and we'll find out how her publications are making a difference in our community. Welcome back to Because Radio. I'm Sunny Promolo. As you all know, Manitoba is home to some of the most giving people in the country. To share those stories, I'm going around the city to speak with impact makers in Winnipeg. This week, I'm with Yoko Chapman, Principal and Creative Director of Yoko Design, a Winnipeg-based design studio that places an importance on the growth and support of local businesses here in Winnipeg. Thanks for coming on uh, Because Radio. Thank you very much. To get started, can you give us a little history on how Yoko Design came to be? Sure. Well, this is my 20th year in business, so it's kind of a special year. In 1999, I literally started working out of my home as a basement Betty, uh, hand-making wedding stationery, and that was before we really had the, the equipment or the printers or the software to design things like we have now. But uh, I, I did that for several years, and um, that evolved into me uh, creating two eco-friendly wedding stationery lines. And um, at a certain point, I decided that that was becoming a lot of work to manage the stock and inventory of, 
of printing and such. So I decided to sort of go back to the graphic design direction. And from there, my business has grown in a lot of different ways. 20 years, that's an amazing milestone. Yeah, it really is. And it's hard to believe all the different things that we have done under the umbrella of Yoko Design. So um, there have been several different brands for products. And um, today we have a new one that I'd like to talk about. Yoko does a lot of things from branding, publishing, design, web, print. And just last year, I believe you added commercial and residential design services. Uh, can you describe to us what makes Ayoko Design a unique experience? Well, I think for our clients, uh, the key is that they come to us as a resource. They're, they're all business owners themselves, and they recognize that we have the same experiences they do. They can relate to us. We are business owners too. So uh, all of the services that we provide are related to marketing and promoting local businesses. So all of the publications that we have created have had that focus historically where we promote Winnipeg's creative community. And there's just so much here to work with that um, I just feel like we're exploding with ideas right now. One of the great things about Ayoko Design is your support for the community. I'd like to talk about one of your projects, a publication called Down to Earth. What was the idea or concept behind Down to Earth? And can you share with us how you got involved with Winnipeg Harvest? Yes, well, uh, two friends of mine who've been very instrumental in uh, getting me involved um, with working with different charities and not-for-profit organizations are Henny Corn and Joyce Berry. Several years ago, they approached me to help them start up a new uh, charity they were working on called Floral Philanthropy, where they donate flowers left over from events to people in care homes and hospitals. So I helped them sort of with some of their technical requirements, setting up website and such at that point, and they really opened my eyes to the possibility of incorporating philanthropic uh, components to my day-to-day business operations. So it just so happens as well that Joyce and Henny also were instrumental in starting up the Crafted Show and Sale at the Winnipeg Art Gallery a few years ago. And since they've moved on from being chairs, I have been the chair uh, last year and this year. So last year, my conversations with the WAG, uh, with Sherry Van Wendt, she is the um, shop manager uh, re- uh, and manages the retail operations at the WAG. Uh, we came up with the idea somehow to create a cookbook featuring local chefs and um, culinary professionals and partnering them with local ceramic artists to create a soup recipe that uh, was a reflection of of their work. So um, now we have this down-to-earth cookbook, which has been a, an amazing success. We're doing another one again this year for the Crafted Show in November. And... Um, this project has also been very influential for me going forward. So what has the support been like from the community? Like how many cookbooks did you sell? Well, we printed 10,000. There's a lot still out in circulation right now, but we have, I would say, sold about 8,000 of them. We sold over half of them within the first couple weeks. People were expecting them and were excited to see them when they got them. And it was a, a great price point. And before the holidays was a good time to purchase them as gifts for people. So they'd come back and, and buy more. So I think we have a bit of a following now. So people will be excited to see this year's issue. And um, yeah, we've already started working on that. So how much would you say was actually provided to Winnipeg Harvest for this project? Well, so far we have technically donated $10,000 as a result of the sales proceeds generated with this cookbook. Um, 
there definitely will be more to come. This is not the end. We still have cookbooks out there. And we're basically at the point where we've paid off all of our expenses for, for production. And now everything that comes in is profit. And Winnipeg Harvest will get to see that. So um, we've donated uh, over $12,000 in total to Winnipeg Harvest. That it, the Down to Earth combined with our A-designed magazine um, worked out to that. But going forward, we have bigger plans. Speaking of bigger plans, this September you'll be publishing a new series of magazines inspired by Down to Earth called Anthology, a project which will support Habitat for Humanity, the Canadian Mental Health Association, and Humane Society. Can you give us an idea of what to expect with these issues and what the thought process was behind them? The key to our success with Down to Earth was community collaboration with um, you know, different businesses, artists, people who make handmade goods. We've had so much support from our community and I guess, you know, it's help, helpful where we're supporting them, but they've also been really great to help us sell the magazines and spread the word. Um, so yeah, the four issues that are coming out for September, um, we will have a home and garden issue that will sort of have a back to nature theme. We will have a uh, people and pets issue, which will be uh, called Fashion Unleashed, and that will feature the work of local fashion designers um, and will present a bit of a challenge to them to uh, come up with some innovative ways to design their clothing in an animal-friendly way. So um, we'll have to look at some creative alternatives. There's lots of great fibers out there, so it should be interesting. And obviously, um, I think we can have a, a great sort of organic feel with that one. And then uh, we have another book called, um, it is our health and leisure issue, which is family, friends, food, and fun. And basically that one uh, is intended to help support or encourage families and friends to spend time together, people of all ages to take part in activities that basically brings people together and that supports good mental health and wellness overall. So there's a there's a common thread with all of our issues. They are all related, but each one will, will support a different charity directly. And then of course we have the Down to Earth Cookbook, which uh, is a special issue. It's a little bit different from the format of the others and uh, it will support Winnipeg Harvest and the Winnipeg Art Gallery. How did you choose what causes to support and why were these particular organizations close to your heart? Well, initially with Winnipeg Harvest, it seemed like um, my sort of instant go-to. Having food is a basic human right. And uh, I have two teenagers who are quite privileged, like most teenagers in Winnipeg uh, can be these days. So I really wanted to have an opportunity for them to see and to get involved with the charity themselves, just, um, you know, what it can be like for other people. And ultimately, you know, my kids were at the forefront when I was thinking about how this could have an impact on my life and was a strong motivating force. But ultimately, the thought that we could potentially give thousands of dollars to an amazing uh, charity like this was a dream, really. <laughs> well, Yoko, it was really great chatting with you today. Is there anything you would like to add and how can people find you? Yeah, well, uh, we will be pre-selling issues on our website shortly. So our website is anthology.ca and we're spelling anthology A-N-T-H-O-L-O-G-I-E. So that's something that we, we have to sort of get everyone familiar with, but uh, you can purchase them online. We've been selling our our 
magazines at McNally Robinson Booksellers at Grant Park Mall, and there are lots of other locations listed on our website too. I really appreciate this today. So thank you to Yoko Chapman for sharing her story of impact. If you or anyone you know is making an impact in our city, you can DM us on social media by searching the Winnipeg Foundation at WPGFDN or reach out and call us at 204-944-9474, extension 360. Again, that's 204-944-9474, extension 360. We'd love to hear about it. I'm Sunny Pomolo for Because Radio. Up next on Because Radio, Youth Parliament of Manitoba's winter session started today and runs until December 31st at the Manitoba Legislative Building. Earlier during the summer, we attended the Youth Parliament Speakers' Night Gala, and we learned more about how it's building skills and engaging young Manitobans in the political process. So we'll have that story up next here on Because Radio. Welcome back to Because Radio, Robert Zirk and Jeremy Morantz here with you today. And last week, Youth Parliament of Manitoba held its annual Speakers' Night Gala Dinner, a community event where donors, alumni, members, and parents get together to celebrate and raise funds for Youth Parliament. Jeremy and I spoke with Deborah Tsao, Premier and Chairperson, as well as Abigail Tiano-Pudwill, Deputy Premier and Vice Chairperson, just prior to the event to learn more about Youth Parliament of Manitoba. Abigail explained that Youth Parliament is an opportunity for youth to build skills and learn about the political process. Youth Parliament is an organization run by youth for youth where we work to teach them about the parliamentary process. And so every year we have a winter session where we bring around 80 youth into the Manitoba legislature and they get to debate six bills that we create ourselves. They spend months working on them and we teach them about that process, about how to vote, how to do amendments and how to learn about what it is that governs them. We asked Deborah and Abigail about their involvement with Youth Parliament and what inspired them to take part. So when I was 16, in grade 11, some members from Youth Parliament came to a debate tournament that I was at to present about this opportunity. And I loved debate and politics, and so I wanted to do something that was just fun for five days. But then after I got there, I was so struck by the examples of youth that I saw. I wanted to continue in that organization. I wanted to grow my own skills. Um, And ultimately it was the presence of those sorts of role models that kept me coming back. I have always loved public speaking. I've always loved learning about our world and the way that people think and their different perspectives all coming together. And when I first started university, I joined a debate club. And it just so happened that the president, the co-presidents actually at the time, were both part of youth parliament. And they recommended that I try it out. And I'm like, "Mm, it sounds a little funky. I mean, coming together over my Christmas break and talking about politics. But no, they told me it was going to be about all these different types of interesting topics about how we could change our world. And I thought, hey, I'm interested in that. And I had never really participated in politics. And so I actually did a spoken word poem as my first ever speech in the house, since every first backbencher gets to do an inaugural speech. And it blew my mind. I fell in love with the community, the atmosphere, and the opportunities that were available to me. Deborah and Abigail also spoke to why the skills that Youth Parliament teaches are more important than ever in today's society. People are becoming very aware of the 
power that lots of politicians and elected representatives have in the form of um, advocacy and awareness of the types of actions they can take, sometimes positive and sometimes negative. I think that the power of youth parliament is that the um, end result of what those policies can look like is substantiated by an understanding of what process it takes to get that type of legislation passed. So we take them through the process of legislation writing, through debate, through amendment, and finally through the vote. And I think that an intimate understanding of the um, mechanics of politics can better inform youth advocacy about um, political change they'd like to see. It can help inspire youth to get involved in politics themselves. And it also develops tons of skills transferable to any area of life, like critical thinking, public speaking, and um, respectful discourse. It's important for every single one of us to take part in our civil duty. If we don't know how our leaders are legislating us, if we don't know how the process that we're voting on works, it makes it more difficult for our voices to be heard and for the changes that we want to be impacted into the world. And so just being aware of the way that that process works, being involved with our communities and learning about how we can make a difference with our voices and with this impact of politics is always important to learn. I mean, we've had alumni who are opera singers, who are in medical school, law school, and me, I'm in a communications officer. And so basically anyone from any background should know about the parliamentary process and will do if they learn at youth parliament. And I asked Deborah about the connections that form through youth parliament and what makes the community that forms so special. It seems funny that for an organization that holds this sort of five-day sleepaway camp, that such intense, deep bonds can be formed. But it's true. People come to our event and make friends that last a lifetime. And I think that the reason for that is because they come and for many of them, it's the first time that they've been in a group of people who are as passionate about social change and politics as they are. They feel heard, they feel listened to, and they feel like they've found a group of people that they can really connect with. Um, I think that that's part of what keeps people continuing to come back. We also have Cabinet, which is a team of volunteers that helps us run uh our event each year and I think that through cabinet through working with each other in teams over the course of an entire year some really deep friendships can form and right now I can say that youth parliament has been the source of some of my closest friends in my life and it's the same with almost every single person I know who's come through the organization youth parliament has had some notable Manitobans go through the program some of whom have gone on to pursue politics, along with others who have become leaders in different areas of the community. Some of our notable alumni have included Lloyd Axworthy, former Manitoba and federal uh, politician, former president of the University of Winnipeg. Also Bill Blakey, former member of the Manitoba legislature. Uh, more recently, we've also had Nala Ayed, foreign correspondent for the CBC. She's done some fantastic reporting. Michael Champagne, who's a community activist here in Winnipeg, who founded Aboriginal Youth Opportunities. These people all came through Youth Parliament, and they're all still connected with the YP community. And when we speak to them, talk about how YP informed their current career paths. Youth Parliament is open to students all across Manitoba and strives to be accessible to as many youth as possible to ensure that everyone can participate. So throughout our 
whole session, we have different ways to teach the youth about how to use the skills that you would need in politics. And so we teach them how a committee runs. We teach them how to take part in Robert's Rules of Order. We teach them how to create a piece of legislation and what the process would be for it to get passed or for it to not pass. We teach them how to speak to the speaker and why it's important for us to follow these rules. But also we make sure that every single person that wants to take part in youth parliament is able to. Whether it be a financial barrier, a public speaking barrier, we help write speeches if they need. We're always making sure that anybody who wants to take part has the ability to. We have been significantly expanding our financial aid programs over the last few years. Um, We have a mandate that any youth who wants to attend our event can attend if financial barriers are present. We will do everything in our power to remove them. So one specific initiative that we have started was formerly known as the Reconciliation Fund. We're renaming it to the Gary McLean Scholarship Fund after um, our former in-house elder. That's a fully funded scholarship for Indigenous youth, for example, to attend our session where we cover their registration fees, the cost of traveling to and from Winnipeg if they come from northern Manitoba. We um, cover the cost of purchasing parliamentary attire if they didn't previously own any. We cover the cost of purchasing food if that's what they need to. So I think that one thing that we've been doing is recognizing every possible barrier. It's not just the registration fee. It can be things like not having the right clothes to wear or not having the means to fly to Winnipeg. So um, we've been expanding those. We have other scholarships available for newcomer youth, for refugees, for people who just need a little extra help to come to our session. And I think that by removing those types of financial barriers, we've been really able to improve the diversity of people who come to session in the past few years. In 2021, Youth Parliament of Manitoba will be celebrating its centennial year. And to lead up to the milestone, it has launched a capital campaign with the goal of raising $100,000 for its endowment fund at the Winnipeg Foundation. We want to make sure that Youth Parliament is accessible, is stable, and is long-lasting. And one way that we can do that is by making sure that our finances are always able to cover all the costs every year. And this would severely help with that. The interest generated by the endowment fund each year will create enough income to actually cover the costs of all the registration fees for a winter session, making it theoretically possible to run a session that's free for everyone to attend and eliminate a lot more of those financial barriers. So for us, the endowment fund represents financial stability. We think it's a great opportunity for donors because the investment income generated each year grows. So one donation, you know, remains a donation every single year and because we think that it'll provide a lot more opportunities for us to give financial aid, for us to build our operations, for us to expand outreach in rural and northern areas. The Winnipeg Foundation generously is going to match one dollar for every five dollars that we raise. So that's very exciting. Every five dollars that you donate is actually six dollars. So that is a really fantastic thing that you've decided to do. And we're really proud of that partnership. 
Throughout the year, we make multiple presentations at universities, at high schools, at debate tournaments, even community events. And so we want, we encourage people to look out for those events. We'll come to you, but we'll also, if you want to find out information about us, go to ypmanitoba.ca on our website. We have videos, we have testimonials. You'll be able to find out a bit more information about what East Parliament is. Even our past legislation is there. But if you're more into Instagram, we've got that covered as well. So check out our Instagram at, at @ypmanitoba or our Twitter as well and you'll be able to get in touch with us. Thank you so much to Deborah Tsao and Abigail Teano Pudwill for speaking with us about Youth Parliament of Manitoba. For Because Radio, I'm Robert Zirk and I'm Jeremy Morantz. On March 25th, almost 250 people gathered at the University of Winnipeg's Riddell Hall for a vital conversation called Lighting the Way Forward, the Calls to Action in Action, to hear Senator Murray Sinclair speak about the history of Indigenous people and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's Calls to Action. We'll have some highlights from Senator Sinclair's keynote next on Because Radio. The Winnipeg Foundation, in partnership with the Mamaway Sacred Seven Youth Council, hosted a vital conversation called Lighting the Way Forward, the Calls to Action in Action. The keynote speaker, Senator Murray Sinclair, was the first Indigenous judge appointed in Manitoba and served Manitoba's justice system for more than 25 years. He also served as the Chief Commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and as co-chair of the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry in Manitoba. Senator Sinclair delivered a very poignant and insightful keynote on reconciliation in Canada and on the nation's journey. He noted that understanding the truth is the foundation of reconciliation, and it goes back to how residential schools were about indoctrinating, not educating. What the schools were all about were indoctrinating Indigenous children into being something that they were not born to be, and that is white kids. They were being indoctrinated into believing that they were like every other non-Indigenous kid in the country, that they had to follow the Bible, that they had to accept that their teachings came from that book, that everything that they had been told by their mothers, their fathers, their grandmothers, their grandfathers, every ceremony that they had ever seen, that everything that they had ever heard about their people was not only wrong, but it was the work of the devil. They were told that it was something that they needed to be ashamed of. When you look at the curriculum materials that were used in the residential schools going back to the turn of the last century, you don't see one positive reference to Indigenous people. And the worst part of it was that some of that worked its way into the public schools of this country. So that those who went to public schools, they were taught the same thing. They were taught that Indigenous people were inferior and could not be trusted, that their culture was irrelevant. Beginning of the story of Canada, according to the public schools, began with the arrival of European settlers, European explorers. Never mind that Indigenous people had been here for thousands and thousands of years. Even now, archaeologists are still moving the date back and that their teachings go back that far. And those teachings were denied 
to those young children who went to the residential schools. And those teachings were also denied to the young indigenous children who went to the public schools. But they were also denied to the non-indigenous children who went to those public schools. And those non-indigenous children were taught to believe that they had no history worth talking about. Whether that was taught directly or by inference, they never talked about that story. The indoctrination perpetuated by residential schools continued to affect attitudes in government and in society over the years and over generations. Senator Sinclair recalled discussions that he had in 2009 with parties to the settlement agreement to clarify what exactly they meant and what they wanted to accomplish by reconciliation. I have to say that the Indigenous leadership and the Indigenous survivors were kind of confused by the term. They didn't know if it meant trying to recreate a peaceful existence that never existed before, whether it meant forgiveness, whether it meant just moving on. But from the church side and the government side, it was very clear what they meant by conciliation, and that is reconciliation was for Indigenous people to do, not for us. Those representatives who came to that table from the government and church side believed that they had done what they should have done, which is create a pot of money, distribute the money, agree to pay compensation, make an apology, and off we go. You guys get on with your lives. Forget about the past now. Let's get going. It's for you to change. They thought, actually, that the residential school settlement agreement and reconciliation was about finishing the work that they had started through the residential schools. There was an element of that in the conversations and the dialogue. They couldn't quite grasp that maybe, just maybe, reconciliation meant that the perpetrators had to change. Senator Sinclair likened the use of law to oppress Indigenous peoples to a psychologically abusive relationship and the concept of gaslighting, where the victim is made to believe that it's all their fault and that the perpetrator is not only doing nothing wrong, but that they've tried to help. Reconciliation means addressing those things and more. Reconciliation is going to be harder than getting to the truth. It is founded upon a very simple concept. And that is that I want to be your friend. And I want you to be mine. And I want you to treat me like you would treat a friend. I want you to talk to and about me in a good, respectful way like you talk about your best friends. I want you to think of me when you need help. I want you to think of me when I need help. I want you to reach out and help me as I will reach out and help you. Reconciliation will help us create a relationship like that. But in order for that to happen, we have to address this long history, this long history that has evolved over the years, because it has created a high degree of mistrust and a high degree of mistrust on both sides, because they don't trust us, they being non-Indigenous leaders, don't trust us to be able to handle our own affairs. And Indigenous people don't trust the government to do the right thing because they have often done the wrong thing. And that permeates our relationship with each other in the neighborhood level. It 
permeates us because we have not had an opportunity to have good dialogue in our neighborhoods. And that's the beginning. That's where it really needs to start. Senator Sinclair cautioned that to continue to move forward, we can't wait for government to take action. Reconciliation starts with us, with all Canadians, and with ensuring that the conversation continues. Our conversation is going to help our young people. The young people hold the key to reconciliation, and the way we educate them is important. We have to educate them in the schools of this country so that we all know where we come from. The four big questions of life, I always remind people, are things that we all grow up with needing to know. Where do I come from? Where am I going? Why am I here? And who am I? Individually, we need to answer those questions and figure out through our elders, our family, our friends, how we can find those answers. But collectively as well, we need to figure out who we are as a country. Where did we come from as a country? Where are we going as a country? What does Canada look like in 50 years from now, 100 years from now? What do we want it to look like? Think of that. Ask yourself that question. Do we want to be at war with each other, verbally, emotionally, in the way that we are now? Do we want this mistrust to continue? Because if we don't, then we have to do something about it. And we have to teach our children how to trust each other, how to understand each other better, so that as they're growing up, when they sit across the table from us in those different positions of leadership, that they will have a basic trust for each other. Indigenous leaders at the time of treaty had that trust. They trusted the government representatives when they said certain things. They didn't know that they couldn't trust them. They didn't know that they would not hold to their words. Dialogues are important, as Senator Sinclair reiterated, and Canadians need to continue the conversation on reconciliation with friends, family, people around them, and the politicians canvassing for their votes, because the conversation and education hasn't gone on for long enough. We have a lot of work to do just to keep reminding people about that history, because my concern was still continues to be that we will forget about that if we don't keep talking about that. And we cannot forget that history. It has to be part of our national memory. That's why the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation at the University of Manitoba is so important, because it archives all of those statements and stories from survivors. And it contains all of the research that we did at the TRC. So keeping that in our national memory is important. But we also now need to start to establish centers for reconciliation across this country so that we will dedicate ourselves to changing our relationship in the best way we can. And it begins by acknowledging our survivors who are here and encouraging them to step forward and speak their truth because they have the lessons that we can learn from. Thank you so much to Senator Murray Sinclair for joining us on Monday evening and sharing your wisdom and insights with us.
And that's a wrap for this edition of Because Radio. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you so much to all of our guests who spoke with us throughout the year. Because Radio is produced by the Winnipeg Foundation in partnership with 93.7 CJNU-FM. Our Because Radio theme music, Call of the North, was written and performed by Micah Ehrenberg. You can find more of his music at micaehrenberg.com. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes or subscribe to our podcast, please visit becauseradio.org. Again, that's becauseradio.org. If you have any feedback about today's show, ideas for stories, or Winnipeg Impact Makers, please give us a call at 204-944-9474, extension 360. Or you can email us at becauseradio at wpgfdn.org. And you can also follow the Winnipeg Foundation on social media as well, at WPGFDN, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Robert Zirk, signing off for Because Radio. On behalf of my co-host, Sonny Primolo, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week with part two of our Because Radio recap. Have a great remainder of the holiday season, and all the best wishes in the new year.